You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Episode 105 of History for Weirdos. Damn, we're glad to be back. Always so glad to be here. Can't believe we're at 105. I know. The time has gone by really quickly, especially since we started up again, like in the fall of 2021. Yes, I feel like it's just gone by so quickly. We've had really amazing milestones, and that's thanks to the weirdos. Yeah, that's that's you. That's you guys. That's the folks listening right now. You're so awesome. Yeah, but before we get started, Andrew has an episode for us this week, a spooky one. It's a good one. Before we jump into that, I just want to remind you all that if you have not done so already, we highly encourage you to join us in Italy next year. We will be going to Rome and Florence, and we want as many weirdos there with us as possible. So if you are interested in booking that trip, you're just going to go to the show notes and you're going to get all the information you need. Perfectly said. Yeah. And I think that's it, right? No other announcements? No other announcements. Perfect. Then regale me with story time, please. Oh, guys, I have a good one. This is a classic. I'm pretty excited about this episode, honestly. I'm really excited, too. I always love when it's my week to listen to story time. It's always better that way, honestly. (laughs) But I did have quite the good time uh, putting this episode together. So, listeners, weirdos fellow countrymen. Without further ado, let's get into it. So we're going to go start off in 1897. That's some, a good year. It's a good right year, right? Yeah. Some guy named Bram Stoker, he's like this Irish personal assistant slash novelist. He wrote a horror story about vampires that was simply titled Dracula. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> to say that the novel was a success in terms of like pop culture would be probably the one of the biggest understatements I've ever said. So the titular character, Count Dracula, has been just so intertwined with vampire lore that it's become a mesh and is inseparable, honestly, at this point. Yeah, he is the vampire. You think of the lore we have around Dracula is what we think of as vampires. Right, exactly. And we'll get into that, too, because like he wasn't like a pioneer in in even vampire stories. Oh, we'll get to that at the end of this episode. But just keep that in mind. Um. He also created the character of Van Helsing. Mm-hmm. Like Van Helsing comes from this novel and has become entrenched as like the vampire hunter. Even in what we do in the shadows, they they reference Van Helsing. Yeah. Guillermo slash Gizmo is, <laughs> is a Van Helsing descendant. <laughs> oh, I love that show. But we're not here to talk about vampire stories or Bram Stoker or what we do in the shadows. No, we are here to talk about the real life person who is the possible, if not probable, inspiration of dracula and we'll discuss that aspect at the end of this episode as well but without further ado let's talk about the insane life of vlad the third draculea or commonly known as vlad the impaler Ooh, that's so exciting so he was born sometime between 1428 to 1431 in the principality of wallachia in present-day romania Wow, I don't think I've ever heard of that. I had not either before I ref- or like researched. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty insane. Um, he did not have an easy earlier life. Mm. Yeah, so and he we was, know this. That's and interesting. we do know this. So, like I said, he was born probably around like 1430. That in my mind, that was like the reference point I used. Again, the years is sometime between 1428 and 1431. We don't know. Mm-hmm. 
And he was born actually either in the Principality of Wallachia or the the next door neighbor, Transylvania. Yes, that's what I was thinking you were going to yes. say. Um, we'll also get into that at the end of this episode. But um, needless to say, he, for all intents and purposes, if he was born in Transylvania, he uh, lived almost his entire life outside of it. Okay. So like he, they would have moved shortly after he was yes. born. Do you remember my mom's friend, Edo? No. Oh, well, she's she went to school in Transylvania. Oh, wow. She's Hungarian. That's so wild. She went to boarding school in Transylvania for high school. That sounds spooky. Yes. She said that the most annoying part of that is that when she moved to America and it would come up. Oh, God. People always ask her if there are vampires. Like, and they're not joking. Oh, Come on, <laughs> my fellow countrymen, you're making us look bad. Yeah, so she said Jeez. it was really annoying to have to keep explaining to people that okay. vampires probably aren't real. <laughs> yeah, that's annoying. So anyways, <laughs> we're going back to Vlad here. Vlad the Third. His mother was named, oh God, I'm going to butcher it. It's Knejana. It's the only time I'll say it throughout this episode. She was of royalty of the small neighboring country of Moldavia. Mm. And his father was Vlad the Second. That who, makes sense. Yeah, and he was an illegitimate son of a Wallachian noble who spent his youth at the court of Sigismund of Luxembourg, who was the king of Hungary and future Holy Roman Emperor. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with an actual Roman Emperor. <laughs> Not going to go down that rabbit hole. Very different things. Very different things. I have a whole rant on it, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so when Vlad was a young child, his father ascended as the leader of Wallachia to become the Voivode, which is like essentially just the name of like a prince or leader. Okay. And it's a small country, so that's why it's called like a principality, not like a kingdom. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's it's teeny. Yeah. And yeah he took over when vlad vlad the third was probably like five years old roughly okay that's so interesting to like maybe have memories of your parent ascending to power i know it's kind of that would be wild huh? that would be so wild yeah and it's during this time that he would get caught in international politics and the machinations of empires mm. so a few years later when he was about 12 years old he accompanied his father and younger brother radu who's actually quite important later on in this episode, uh, to the Ottoman Empire, mm. which was like its next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, they were immediately imprisoned by the Sultan <laughs> of the uh, that, of the empire at the time, Murad II. And what's terrible is that about after just a year in captivity, Vlad the father was released, um, but his sons would remain imprisoned for an additional six years. Wow, yeah. that's torturous. Like, I would hope for a parent to be like, you can go, but guess what? Your kids have to stay. Yeah. That's a big punishment. It is. It is. Um, the accounts seem that for, like, the prisoners, they actually, you know, as prisoners, they had it relatively good. Mm-hmm. Um, like, in comparison to being, a pr- like, a political prisoner, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, because of their lineage, yeah, I'm because sure. of their rank, yeah, and lineage, mm-hmm. and this, it, and it makes sense because this was actually quite common practice amongst the Ottomans, as they wanted to raise people who were sympathetic to Ottoman rule. Ooh, right? that's smart. Yeah, they're playing the long game, and so it's like, okay, we have this like prince of a neighboring country. We're going to like it basically indoctrinate them right mm-hmm. through being through honey mm-hmm. instead of vinegar, right? And they, and they are raising them to be like Ottomanophiles. Okay. I think I just made up that word, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. To have, at the very least, respect, if not reverence, for the culture. Exactly. Very interesting. That's a good strategy. Yeah, it is. It didn't work on Vlad, but we'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) So before we move on to our boy Vlad, let's talk about Daddio first. Okay. So Vlad II belonged to an organization called, quote, the Order of the Dragon, or... Societas Draconistarium in Latin. Wow. Yeah. So this brotherhood was styled in like kind of the old crusader fashion of a couple centuries prior and was dedicated to stopping the spread of Ottoman influence into Europe. Like that was its sole mission. Wow. Yeah. So in fact, it's because of this order that Vlad II was granted the surname of Dracul or dragon. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. 
And remember that like aforementioned Sigismund um, that I had just like talked about like a few minutes prior. Mm -hmm. So he actually founded this order. So you can imagine how important a role that daddy Vlad had within the organization. Yes. <laughs> also, did you like how I said daddy Vlad? Yes. I, just, I did that just because I wanted to see <laughs> what type of reaction I get from you. <laughs> so I hope you also like that listeners. Um, Okay, so the Ottomans in future years, they would often try to invade Europe through the lands of like present-day Romania and Hungary, so it makes sense that Sigismund and Father Vlad would be a part of this order. Mm -hmm. So let's get back to our boy Vlad. A year after Dad Vlad was released, um, he actually supported the king of Poland and Hungary at the time, Vladislaus, in his war against the Ottomans while his sons were still imprisoned by the Ottomans. Why? That's so risky. He literally just assumed that his two sons would be butchered, but he wanted, <gasps> he rebelled um, in the name of Christendom, you know, quote unquote. Yeah, that's such BS. Yeah, exactly. So um, miraculously, though, they were not murdered and they were not treated like illy or, you know, at, at will or at ill. That's insane. Yeah, right? Thank goodness. I mean, no thanks to dad, it sounds like. No thanks to him at all. He had, they had no ill will against the children. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I was trying to say earlier. I got what you meant. You got what I meant. Thank yeah. you. Hope you guys did too. So <laughs> dad Vlad um, ended up losing that war, right? Rebelling. And he kind of tail in between his legs, went and swore fealty to the Ottoman Sultan. Um, that's so embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> and like, like. To make it worse and like, oh, you rebelled against me, but like, I'm really nice. He actually, re the, uh, the Sultan released his two sons to him. It just truly makes it look like you were never even a threat to me. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. Like he, he literally just treated him as like an afterthought. Yeah. Cause he's not a king like in his own right. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they, ha they have to kind of swear fealty because like when I mentioned like machinations of empires, there's also like kind of like a, the Hungarian kingdom slash mm -hmm. empire. That's like on the other side of the border. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they're kind of like caught right in between like two aspiring nations. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're really like the small fish in yeah. a big pond. You're always like just in the middle of like proxy war. Exactly. So they ended up getting released to dad and all would be hunky dory for like two seconds. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, so because Dad Vlad had made that arrangement with the Ottomans and now like swore fealty to them, mm -hmm. this made him vulnerable to the larger Christian states, again, like that were on the opposite side of the borders. Um, talk about like a rock and a hard place, right? Yeah, this, I mean, I don't, his dad kind of seems sus suspect at the very least, but I feel right. bad. He really can't win. No, he really can't. Um, the regent of Hungary... Uh, a guy by the name of Janos Hunyadi, he orchestrated the overthrow of Vlad's reign in 1447 by collaborating with Wallachian noblemen who were mm. called boyars. Mm. Yeah, same as in Russia, actually. Mm -hmm. Vlad II was quickly found and executed. Oh, bye. Not only that, but Vlad's older brother, Merkea, was blinded and buried alive. What? Yeah, some extreme brutality. That's worse. It is. I know. Just like, execute me. Yeah, exactly. Why would you do that? I couldn't find any reason as to why. There's definitely a story behind it. I mean, it could be lost to time at this point, but right. blinding someone is very symbolic. Yeah. Burying them alive is extremely torturous. That's so interesting to me. So back towards the very end of the 8th century AD, the uh, Byzantine Roman Empress Irene of Athens, mm -hmm. she blinded her son to take power. Wow. And that is why, actually, fun fact, why Charlemagne was crowned in the West as the quote-unquote holy first Holy Roman Emperor because mm -hmm. they couldn't allow a woman to be in charge. Not because she blinded her son. No. no. It's because she was a woman. Yeah. That's yeah. obviously the bigger crime. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> Clearly. Uh, good old, like, medieval times. Well, anyways, Janos installed a guy by the name of Vladislav II onto the throne of Wallachia. And he himself was, like, a distant uh, relative to Vlad and had, uh, of course, Wallachian noble blood. 
Um, Byzantine Roman historian Michael Critobolus wrote that Vlad and Radu ironically fled back to the Ottoman Empire after all this went down. Right, right. That makes sense. They were safer with them. Right. Mm -hmm. And we can imagine that this fostered quite the resentment in young Vlad and Mm -hmm. would probably be a future motivation for future actions. Interesting. I have a feeling these actions are not very nice. No, 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 no. Quite insane. So the following year, in September of 1448, um, Vlad, by the way, is like roughly like I'd say 18 at this point. Okay. Roughly. Janos Hunatyadi, he mounted an offensive against the Ottomans, and this allowed Vlad to have the perfect opportunity to strike, kind of like going around the army. In the following month of October, Vlad led or some sources say snuck, a small Ottoman army right back into Wallachia to take his position as Vovoid. Oh, wow. Uh, yay, success, right? Mm-hmm. Risky move. but Yeah. He is successful, but it lasts an incredibly short amount of time, like maybe six weeks. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, by December, he was fleeing back to the Ottomans. Oh, my again. gosh. Right. And what follow, follows here is really interesting because we essentially have very little written about Vlad during like the next eight years of his life between 1448 and 1456. Okay. And this seems to be a theme, as we know, because like he was imprisoned once before as mm-hmm. a young child and you know very little is written about him. And then just as a teeny bit of a spoiler, we're going to have another period in time where he kind of just kind of disappears and comes back. Okay, so kind of like these time periods of regrouping or lack of power, lack of control. I think all of the above, yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. However, I think that's all I'll spoil for you weirdos right now. Um, But during this period, he seemed to move around a lot. And weirdly enough, by the end of this period, Vlad is done playing nice with the Ottomans and is now firmly allied with the Hungarians. Okay. um, John Hunyadi. Mm-hmm. who was the man who kind of orchestrated the overthrow of his father in the first place. That's weird. It's really weird because his counterpart, Vladislav, who John Hunyadi like installed on the throne, yeah. is now allied with the Ottomans. So they switched. They come. They just did... Like a flip-flop. The technical term is the old switcheroo. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were actually going to tell me a technical term. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so the struggle over Wallachia is about to come to a head. Um, And this is partly due to a climactic event that happened in 1453. Do you know what that could be? If you know, you know. 1453. It's a big event. The wine was terrible that year. I know that. I don't know. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know, including Stephanie, the new Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II conquered the last remnant of the Byzantine Roman Empire and took the city of Constantinople. No, I did not know that at all. You made it seem like it would be something so that's, obvious. That's a huge deal. That is still not that obvious. Like, I okay. thought, some, I don't know. Okay, it's clear that I am the bigger history nerd here. Yes. <laughs> You're like, yes, that is true. Very, very true. And it's, we've discussed my time blindness. That's true. Spans all of time. Fair, fair point. Time before, time now, <laughs> time in the future. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> well, Okay. I'm going to give you another date then. So July 1456, <laughs> as the Ottomans and Jan Hunyadi's forces were locked in battle, Vlad led a small force of exiled boyars, Hungarians, and Romanian mercenaries against his old enemy, Vladislav II, at the capital city of Targoviste. Hmm. So apparently they fought in hand-to-hand combat. And that's badass. That's so badass. And Vlad, our boy Vlad, um, not only won, but he decapitated Vladislav. That's that's a move. I feel like he won. Let's just say this would be a very fitting start to begin his second reign. Okay. So But did he win? He he did win. Okay, cool. Yeah. (laughs) I was joking. (laughs) I was like, did you just not listen to anything I just said? (laughs) I was joking because he decapitated the guy. Yeah. Okay, glad. Okay, I'm glad. I was really confused there for a second. I was a little even worried for you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, so 14, in 1456, uh, is just in a really bad state of affairs. Trade had essentially stopped. Fields were not being kept up. And there was a general sense of lawlessness in the land. Vlad needed to solidify his reign, so he cracked down on all crime. 
and he instituted harsh penalties for even the smallest infractions. Our blo- our boy Vlad, he was just not messing around. There's only our boy Vlad now. Yeah, there's yeah, Vlad the second's dead. Yeah. His dad. I know. You keep saying our boy Vlad, but well, he is but now the only Vlad. He is the only Vlad, but like I, I'm keeping the theme alive. Also, there's like Vladislav. Also, like I feel like I feel like this guy's not my boy. No, he's, I don't know why. He's <laughs> our boy in the sense of like he's the protagonist of the story, not necessarily that he's the good guy. But his his legacy is very complicated. So that's all I'll say for now. He promoted commoners and even foreigners to positions of power within his government mm-hmm. because this would essentially guarantee loyalty to Vlad and Vlad alone mm-hmm. and would further cement his position of power, right? As the main Vlad. As the, as the voivode. Yeah, the voivode. Okay. I guess that makes sense. You get the people on your side. Right. It's interesting that his first angle was to address crime. Crime must have been really bad, too. It was. But I feel like feeding people is also really important. It is. Yes. (laughs) You agree? I do agree with that. That must have been part of it, even though I didn't really, like, research that food. Or it wasn't... It's not like I didn't research it. It just didn't come up in the research, I Mm -hmm. should say. So... We also enter the part of his story, which is kind of legendary. Not in like legendary as in like, oh, it's a myth. We don't know. Legendary is like, oh, like, okay. Everyone's heard about this. Yeah. Yeah. So there were pretty early on in his reign, like very immediate targeted acts of extreme violence against the people whom Vlad considered as enemies of his state for their part in the murders of his father and his older brother. Okay. In one such event, he invited 200 of the Wallachian boyars to a grand Easter banquet with their families. And this, oh, that's nice. No. No, it wasn't nice. So he stabbed and impaled the women and children while making the men watch. On Easter? Yes. Wow. That's a sinvergüenza right there. Yeah. That man's got no shame. Then he forced the the surviving men, the boyars, into slavery, where they would oh actually build the Ponari Castle, which can still be visited today, although it's largely in ruins. Wow. Can you imagine, under such what I imagine, just because of what I know of the Western world, like such a severe patriarchy to attack the women and children yeah, first? To as make, a message. As a message to make the men feel completely helpless and powerless. Yes. Before enslaving them. Yep. Like, that's some Scorpio energy, if I've ever heard of any. (laughs) So, let's talk about impalement, because that was just a terrible way to go. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's so brutal that I can't really talk about it in too much detail here. Mm -hmm. All you need to know is that you have a stake or even like a pole that a person is put onto... Through the bottom and out the top. Mm-hmm. Like, it's pretty gnarly. Again, it's gruesome, and that's all I'll say on the subject. Yeah. We're going to move on. It's just horrific. Kind of back to Vlad. He would essentially create, like, a new upper class at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, people called the Viteji, and which was, like, a military division made up of farmers who had distinguished themselves, like, on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And then also another group was created called the Sluji, which is a group that was like kind of similar to like a national guard. Okay. So very quickly, Vlad is reorganizing the fabric of Lockean society through mainly targeted violence. Mm-hmm. And speaking of which, he also targeted an ethnic minority group of Germanic peoples called the Saxons. Yeah, we've heard of them. Yeah, you've heard of the Saxons. It is funny enough, like the same Saxons of... Anglo-Saxons. Like Anglo-Saxons and that like... It's not the Anglo-Saxons, but they it they share the same like ancestor of in Germany. Okay, yeah. from Saxony probably. Yeah, I have to interrupt to say I googled it while you were talking, yes. and it's believed that Vlad the Impaler was a Scorpio. That's all I'll say. That that's really that. important <laughs> knowledge. Thank you. <laughs> so. 
back to the Saxons and remind you, like, this is like about this, the Saxons that invaded like um, Britain at the end of like the Roman empire was like around like the early four hundreds. And now we're like into the 1400s. So it's like, we're like a thousand years later, just like FYI, in case anyone was interested. I'm a huge nerd with that stuff. So I was anyways, this group was disproportionately wealthy as they were comprised of mostly like kind of a well-to-do merchant class. Mm-hmm. And Vlad also saw them as the enemy as many have sided against his father. Oh, okay. So over the course of the first few years of his rule, he would just go on to destroy entire villages, raising all buildings to the ground while also impaling thousands. Mm-hmm. And in one such event, he reportedly impaled 30,000 people and then dined amongst the dying so he could witness their suffering personally. Oh my gosh. That one, I think, is um, a later writing, so it may not be true, but I wanted to include it because it's where the jury's still kind of out on that one. And it tells us how he was perceived, you know. Yes. Just as utterly brutal. He was, yeah. Um, to say that he ruled with an iron fist is probably the understatement of the century. Yeah. Sounds like an iron fist would have been like a nice break (laughs) from this guy's rule. (laughs) So basically anyone he saw as a threat to either himself or the people of Wallachia as the enemy, including like the aforementioned Saxons, Hungarian, Catholic, and Romani people. Mm. Um, So everyone. Pretty much. Yeah. A lot of people (laughs) were considered like enemies of the state. Um, And he would just eliminate them. Wow. ruthlessly pope Pius ii issued a report in 1462 claiming that vlad iii had killed some forty thousand people oh my god one person to be responsible for forty thousand deaths yes that would be insane so why did he do all this right like why be so exceptionally cruel when dealing with his enemies here's the thing though like I don't want to portray Vlad as some like ruth like ruthless brute. He mm-hmm. wasn't. He was he was ruthlessly intelligent. All of this was not just for his amusement. Um, there was a reason for this madness. His methods were essentially psychological warfare. Mm-hmm. In his world, violence was like a commodity and even like a political currency in in some ways. I mean, he was sending the message that he and his people were not to be trifled with. Mm-hmm. And he would sign his correspondence with the name. And th- this is like in his language, Wadislaus Dragulia, or son of the dragon. Mm. So it seems like his devotion to his father's order is seemingly still intact. That's very interesting, particularly because his dad didn't sound that great. No, he didn't. He that's just very, joined very this order, but he was still like looking out for number one at the end of the day. Yeah, so that's interesting. He definitely has like an idealized version of this man. Yes. Mm-hmm. His enemies, though, however, gave him a different sobriquet, Tepes, or in English, the Impaler. Oh. So what's interesting about Vlad is how he was perceived in Europe. Starting in the 1470s, many pamphlets and printed materials detailing the atrocities started to circulate in, like, Germany specifically. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense considering that, one, like, it was Germanic peoples that Vlad, you know, had committed some of his worst atrocities against. Mm -hmm. And two, the printing press had just been invented in Germany, like, a few decades prior, or even a couple decades prior. Gutenberg Bible. There you go. Mm -hmm. Guten daddy. (laughs) (laughs) But Vlad was also seen as a national hero amongst many of his people, and even many Romanians to this day. Um, and had admirers even amongst the more Catholic communities throughout Europe, despite his atrocities against Catholics. Very interesting. So let's get into why that is. So once Vlad had switched sides against the Ottomans in his bid for you know being the voivode of Wallachia, he never wavered in his stern opposition against them. Mm. In fact, in 1459, just a few years after Vlad had gained power, he was visited by Ottoman emissaries who relayed that he owed them tribute, specifically 10,000 ducats and 300 young boys. Oh. Yeah, I didn't... That's upsetting. It's really, yeah, it did not please Vlad either. Oh, boy. When he asked the emissaries to remove their turbans, they replied that it was, you know, against their religious custom, to which our boy, Vlad, maybe not best use of our boy here, uh, <laughs> Vlad, not our boy, commended them on their commitment to their religion. But 
it was still perceived as a slight and it would not go unpunished. He nailed the turbans to their heads. Wow. This dude definitely has some psychopathy going on. He does. He demanded respect because there was another... Because he was so disrespected as in the formative years of his life. It's like... Boom. There you go. It's like the thing he craves the most. You're like... You're therapizing him right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because there was another emissary. I didn't write this in my notes, but I did see it. Um, I think it was a Hungarian emissary and he came to Vlad and showed very like, it was very um, respectful. Mm-hmm. Like he did demand something from him or he relayed the message that like his monarch demanded something from him, but was very respectful. And Vlad actually gave him gifts. Mm-hmm. That so makes sense. He, he, I think he did have psychopathy, but he was seen as like a just ruler with extreme measures. Right. I guess like, I mean, for the world at the time, right. Probably wasn't like it's extreme, probably even to them, but not that crazy. Right. Exactly. That's the world was violent. The world, especially at this time was really turbulent and violent. Yeah. Um, Vlad would remain staunchly anti-Ottoman for the rest of his life, which would gain him, gain him the support of Matthias Corvinus, a.k.a. Matthias I, King of Hungary. Mm. And this is actually, ironically, like the son of Janos Hunyadi. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Mm. So his atrocities would now be directed against the sultan and the people loyal to him. Okay. So he can, like, focus his atrocities now. Exactly. After Vlad uncovered a plot to assassinate him, orchestrated by the sultan, by the way, he went after the conspirators and had them executed. He didn't. It didn't say that he impaled them, though, interestingly. Um, then he went on a campaign of retribution against the Ottoman Empire, going south of the Danube River, which was the border of Wallachia and still is actually the southern border of Romania to this day, and he captured Ottoman fortifications. So this was purely a punitive campaign as okay. he decimated villages and smaller cities along the Danube. Wow. So just to make a statement. Just to make a statement. In fact, he uh, he would write to Matthias in, or Matthias in February of 1462 that he had killed, quote, 23,884 Turks and Bulgarians while taking thousands prisoner. Oh, my God. The precise number is also strangely frightening to me. Because yeah, it that's implies, so specific. Yeah, like implies how methodical he was in his mission. Right. Ugh. Yeah, that's like creepy. Psychopathy. Yeah. Well, Mehmed II was furious at this, and he raised an army somewhere between ninety to one hundred fifty thousand strong. That's huge. It's a giant army. Oh my gosh! I mean, this was absolutely massive, and would be hard to match by any other power at the time, let alone the tiny state of Wallachia. Yeah, it's so small. It's probably the whole state. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> So in May of 1462, the army crossed the Danube River into Wallachia. Vlad enacted like a scorched earth policy and created an atmosphere that was entirely hostile to the Mm. invading force. Mm -hmm. He couldn't engage directly because like his army was just tiny comparatively, right? They couldn't Mm -hmm. do a pitched battle. So this was the next best thing. In the following month during like the night slash morning of June 16th, June 17th, he broke into the Ottoman camp to either try to capture or assassinate the Sultan as that would send the invaders into a panic, right? Yeah. This would be known as the night attack at Terragovisti. And the two armies fought from like three hours after sunset till about four in the morning. Oh my gosh. What's incredible is like from at this time and for thousands of years prior, like uh, fighting at night was far more dangerous than yeah. fighting during the day and armies rarely if ever did it because think of how dark it used to be exactly there's no city lights there's no city lights you just have torches yeah you had torches then in 1400 and you had torches 2000 years prior so you could very easily kill your own men right exactly like it was instilled that you just didn't fight at night like in in olden times like you would have these pitch major pitch battles, but like as soon as nighttime happened, like you would retreat back to your camps. Yeah, of course. Cause what are you going to do? Yeah. It was too, it was way too risky. This is wild. Yeah. So the, the, he was, <laughs> he, he must've had some psychopathy. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't really think about it when I was writing these notes, but this is insane. He has no fear of, uh, 
breaking the rules right of like that risk that that entails he doesn't fear it he cares much more about winning and his ego oh yeah so the attack did fail and vlad continued his scorch earth campaign and retreated to the capital city of Targo Viste. Um, and it's here that he sent a message to the invading force that would even shock the Sultan himself. <laughs> Towards the end of June, the Ottoman forces arrived at Targo Viste and the city was completely abandoned. And there was just an intense horror, like along the roads and right outside the city. <laughs> so, there, it was a hellish sight. Vlad had employed his trademark tactic, impaling, impaling. more than 23,000 prisoners and their families and putting them just on display. Like, it, it it was described as, like, a forest of the dead. That's so disgusting. Because the stakes were really high. Yeah. So it was just very disturbing. That must look like some form of hell. Literally, yeah. I think I described it as hellish, like for a reason, because it did. Yeah. Like it, I saw. I've seen like some like artist renditions of what it would have looked like, and it, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Even even with painting, it, it right. looks terrible. Right. It's interesting because like when I read about this, it kind of reminded me of um, what happened to the remnants of Spartacus's army mm-hmm. when he rebelled mm-hmm. against Rome um, about fifteen hundred years prior to this. Mm-hmm. But this message was not simply you know, out of cruelty, right? Um, the message was that, like, they would never, ever give up against the Ottomans, and they will literally, like, fight them tooth and nail. Also, so, we're, and, we're super cruel. Yeah, and also, like, <laughs> we did this, and, like, we will continue to do this. Like, it's just, like, psych- it truly is, like, like almost psychological warfare, like, terrorism. Yeah. It's, like, state-sponsored terrorism, I think is the best way to describe it. You'd be willing to do anything to instill fear exactly. in the enemy. Exactly. So this freaked out Mehmed so much that he um, actually just straight up turned and left back to Constantinople. I would too. Um, although another account says that he was really impressed and he's like, oh, I, I can't like kill someone who's this like badass and so left. I have a feeling that, that one, that's not the, <laughs> that's yeah. not what happened. No, I, that one was a, um, <laughs> like someone who was like a, like a Byzantine Roman Oh, okay. Like, I was trying to probably make it seem like, no, he wasn't scared. He was, like, right. impressed. And, like, think about it. Like, he was writing after the fall of Constantinople. Right. So, he, like, they hated Mehmed. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Anything to make, like, anyone, like, any of his enemies look good. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, he just didn't want that smoke, regardless of the account. He wasn't down. He was not down. Vlad also had sacks full of severed noses and, and ears as oh proof. God. In case anyone didn't believe him. Oh my god. So he had stopped the invading army, yet his tactics were so harsh that many of the boyars actually defended to his brother Radu, <laughs> whom we mentioned earlier, right? Yes. And who was supported by the Ottomans. Um, in fact, his popularity had waned so drastically that he would end up, ironically, being arrested by agents of Matthias I in 1462. Arrested for what? Um, he just concocted like literal like and most historians agree that this is all phony um, letters that said that he was actually working with the Ottomans. To, oh, okay. Like, so he needed a fake reason. Exactly. But it really was like, you're so psycho. It grosses us out. That's, I think a really good <laughs> sum, like summary of what actually happened. We can't let you keep doing this stuff. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So he would be in prison for 12 years. Yeah. And minimum. Again, I mean, think of all the death. Yeah. So we have zero knowledge again of like what's what, happening, what's happening with mm-hmm. him. Like during this, this 12 years, he's very fortunate that he continuously is imprisoned versus executed. Yes. Um, it's a very good point, but in Wallachia, like his brother ruled for a time before he died and power switched just like back and forth, like multiple times. Oof. So like, that's all we really need to know. Mm-hmm. It was really bad to the point where even his, even the boyers were like, actually, let's let's have Vlad back. Wow, that's how bad it was. Wow, because they knew he'll at least like whip this into shape. Exactly, and funny enough, like 1475, Vlad is roughly like 45 years old now, 
uh, Matthias recognizes him as the rightful ruler of Wallachia <laughs> and sends him to regain control over his land. And it's like, bro, you just imprisoned him for 12 years. You're like, actually, never mind. You're you're the, our guy now. That's Go. absolutely bonkers. It is. and But he also sends him without any army. Like zero. No one. What? Yeah. Basically, I think he just wants him dead. And uh-huh. he's just like, I'm not going to kill you, but like, hopefully someone else will. So... Um, luckily the very boyers that had, yeah, like defected to Radu were now his biggest like supporters. Okay. Um, people are very wishy-washy. Yes. The world of men is strange. So Vlad actually had some initial success and regained some of like his power, like following, uh, in the following year in 1476, Mm -hmm. um, with, and this is with the help of another neighboring monarch, a guy by the name of Stephen III of Moldavia. Mm-hmm. And this is another province that would eventually become Romania. Okay. And so he was, resor- you know, our boy Vlad, maybe not our boy again, but Vlad, he resorted to his terror tactics just one more time. Just one once more, time. more. Just, you know, for good old. Good, what could know, it hurt? What could it hurt, right? <laughs> He's like, I really got to cement my legacy, guys. So he impales Turkish soldiers and anyone who just rallied to the Ottoman cause. Oh, my gosh. Um, and he would rule for a very short amount of time, not unlike his first reign. But he would eventually die this time in either December of 1476 or January of 1477. Thank goodness. Yeah. Most likely in his 40s. And according to legend, so he basically gets ambushed. He's like at the head of a teeny army, like 2,000 men. Mm-hmm. And he gets ambushed by an army like, you know, two to four times larger. Mm-hmm. And he dies. And according to legend, his corpse was decapitated. Mm-hmm. And his head was sent to Constantinople to be mounted on a spike. Oof. Lovely. Wow. This is gruesome. It's This was a really gruesome episode. <laughs> so immediately after his death... Like, most publications described his brutal violence in a way that was both condemning, yet also made to, like, shock the reader, right? Yeah, of course. It is shocking. The acts yeah, are shocking. It's incredibly shocking. And it is, like, an early, like, an early sense of, like, shock entertainment. Yeah, of course. So, there was also, though, a certain reverence of him defending, you know, like, Christian Europe against the Islamic Ottoman invaders, which was, you know, like, a huge theme of the day. Right, right. So it's like, yeah, he might have been, like, a terrible tyrant, but he also defended Christendom, so... But did like, he? Yeah, I don't... I mean, look, like... <laughs> but do you just... defend Christendom when you impale tens of thousands of people? Yeah, you know... Mm. I have a feeling he did not give a rat's behind. No, no, he absolutely did not. He was... Like, he was power hungry. He just wants to impale people. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, he just wants to prove a point. Yeah. He's like, it's not so much about the brutality. It's about the point. Yeah. Maybe for him it was. So despite his insane brutality, he was seen as some sort of folk hero. Uh, and like I mentioned earlier, still kind of seen as such today. Mm-hmm. Um, though it is not universal as like, um, in particular, like this one Romanian defense minister, like Eowyn Merkea Pascu asserted that Vlad would have been condemned for war crimes against humanity. Had he been put on trial in, at Nuremberg? Of course. Right. Those and, are total right, war for, crimes. Yeah, absolutely. And after some publications throughout like the late 15th century, interest in Vlad Draculea, mm waned and he would most likely have been relocated to a footnote in history that's so wild how someone who was so notorious and did so much damage can just kind of like kind of fall out of fashion yeah you know exactly and that kind of that does happen for like centuries so we're gonna fast forward now actually to 1820 okay william wilkinson the british consul to Wallachia, published a book titled quote an account of the principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia with various political observations relating to them. That's such a snappy title. I was going to say bro needed a better <laughs> title. Absolutely. He did. That's terrible. That sounds like a bestseller. But in this work though, he does detail the life of Vlad Draculea. Yeah. Cause it was a big part of that. He was. Yeah. And guess what? 70 years later, like exactly in 1890, this, this guy that I mentioned, Bram Stoker, yeah, he's actually visiting Wallachia, and it is documented that he actually gets this book. Of course. Some light reading for he, the travel. Exactly. And even he wrote in his notes, quote, Dracula in Wallachian language means 
devil in all caps. Wallachians were accustomed to give it as a surname to any person who rendered himself conspicuous either by courage, cruel actions, or cunning. Mm. End quote. Note to everyone here, um, that's wrong. But <laughs> like, but yeah, I'm reading what he wrote verbatim. I love that so much. <laughs> How he's just like asserting this as if it's truth and it's totally wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. And it's not something that's subjective. It's a translation. Yeah, exactly. No, it means dragon. Um, but anyways. <laughs> so now the question is, did Vlad Dracula actually inspire Dracula? It's a little unclear, actually. Mm. So vampire stories were in vogue at this time and had been for around a century up at this point, like especially in England, meaning that his story wasn't exactly groundbreaking from like a monster perspective, right? Okay. And more importantly, Vlad Dracula probably didn't inspire Stoker from his actions to be a bloodthirsty vampire, right? Mm -hmm. um, because like vampires were well like entrenched in the minds of people especially in victorian england yeah it's already a part of like the collective psyche exactly mm -hmm. so um just it's most my theories that like just like the name most likely stuck as stoker does not mention vlad by name anywhere in his notes wow yeah so he was really really tied to this like <laughs> this error that he made yes he's like oh it means devil that's like so metal it's so metal i'm gonna use this in my book but but like here's the thing like since he read that book um by wilkinson mm -hmm. um he's obviously aware of vlad the exactly. yeah he it's knows like of him impossible to ignore the brutality of vlad's rule yeah i could see that it's maybe not even like a conscious inspiration but maybe like a subconscious thing that's exactly what i think yeah and what's also interesting is that the vampire Dracula is from Transylvania and his castle is located there too, right? Mm -hmm. But like I said earlier in this episode, our, like the real life Vlad was not from that region, um, you know, apart like possibly like very early on in his childhood. That's so interesting. Like I wonder if that's coincidence or right. if, again, if that was like some sort of subconscious thing or intentional even Wallachia is right next to Transylvania so mm -hmm. it's like possibly mm -hmm. right you know and it's interesting because like a fact to know if you're ever tempted to if you're ever in Transylvania you're tempted to visit Bran Castle which is dubbed Dracula's Castle mm -hmm. you know as a Turk tourist destination Vlad never visited that castle never stepped foot in it okay so you kind of know it's it's BS yeah like it was not um, there was that one castle that I mentioned earlier that you can visit to this day. It's but in it ruins. Is, yeah. It's in ruins. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, Steph and weirdos? Did Vlad the third Draculaia inspire the vampire myth of Dracula or is it all bullocks or mm. is it somewhere in the middle? I think it's somewhere in the middle. I agree. I'm sure multiple things would have inspired him to create the character. And it sounds like Vlad is one of those. I think he's a passive inspiration. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. I, I really like what you said about like his subconscious. Yeah. Like maybe, you know, we do that all the time as I've definitely thought that I invented something <laughs> before, like yeah. that I'm the first person to think of something. And then you realize, Oh no, I read that. Or I saw a video on that like <laughs> yeah. years ago. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I've, I've literally done that before. I'm like, Oh, I invented this. And I'm like, Oh, oh no. no. So-and-so told me about this. That's yeah. right. That's right. So that could be something like that. Because while there, while Vlad the Impaler was insanely cruel, and that's very shocking, right. there doesn't seem to be too many similarities to like the vampire Dracula. Exactly, there really isn't actually. Because the vampire is all like seductive, and he's got those like three lady vampires that live with his him. wives. Yeah, and he drinks blood and is a bat and things like that. Like it doesn't seem to be too aligned. No, it, it really isn't. I don't think it is. I think that's a really good observation. Yeah. But that's still so interesting. And I've heard you hear all the time, like, Oh, Dracula is based on a real guy. Right. And this guy. And it's like, well, like maybe passively, but he's not the active inspiration. Yeah. And I, I didn't really know much about Vlad the Impaler other than I gleaned. He probably impaled a lot of people right, to get a name like that. Tens of thousands, <laughs> yeah. like multiple tens of thousands. It's insane. And 
one quick random fact before we close out the episode. Apparently some evidence came out and researched only a few years ago um, in 2018 mm. that concluded that the real life Vlad had a condition called hemolacria. And I'm not sure I'm even saying that right. Mm-hmm. But which caused him to cry blood. <gasps> Isn't that wild? That's actually weird. That's really weird. Yeah. But I don't think this would have been known to Bram Stoker because this would just came out very recently. That's so interesting. I wonder how that even comes about so much later. It's because they analyzed, they had letters from him and they analyzed, there was some like protein residue on the letters still centuries later. And they looked at it and like, oh, he oh had my this. God. He had this disease. That's crazy. Yeah. It's not fucking wild. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse my French guys. <laughs> I've also never heard of that condition before. I, I had to like look it up because I was like, this is BS. But I'm like, yeah. no, it's, this is real. You, I only ever growing up very Catholic hear of like saint statues crying blood in random places. <laughs> yes. As like a miracle. Right? Yes. But I've never heard of, and obviously those are fake, but <laughs> I've never I heard I of. qualify that. Yeah. Just in case. I don't want people to think that I don't think that I think that's real. But I didn't think that that could happen to a person. Yeah, so maybe wonder... it can happen to a statue. <laughs> it would be less painful, I bet, for a statue. That doesn't sound like a pleasant condition. It does not. So maybe that's why he just like didn't cry. He was just like, I kill people and I have no emotion about it. What a, what a brand. It's a brand indeed. It really would have fit in with his brand. Absolutely. That's fascinating. It is. Well... Weirdos, that is the story. And before we like conclude, conclude, uh, my sources for this week's episode mm-hmm. were Nat Geo, Live Science, All That's Interesting, ZME Science, Ars Technica, and of course, our absolute favorite, Wikipedia. That was awesome, my love. Thank you so much for telling us about Vlad the Impaler. This is a perfect spooky season episode. Yeah, I thought so too. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Yes, and weirdos, I forgot to mention, this is kind of like a little teaser for anyone who's still listening to the episode at this point. We have some exciting things that we're working on, Andrew and I, that will be released soon. So the best way to stay up to date with us is definitely through Instagram. So you could be the first folks to get like a sneak peek on that. Follow us on Instagram at History for Weirdos. Yeah, and plus I put on amazing content as does stephanie so if you want to like see us <laughs> see more random facts or just like sometimes behind the scenes stuff exactly. silly stuff that we're doing it's a good place to keep in touch with us and if for whatever reason we ever uh, aren't able to release an episode or there's a technical issue instagrams where you'll hear those updates there you go straight from the babe's mouth yeah you and, are a babe oh thank you oh my gosh <laughs> And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Yeah, guys. And until next time. Until next time, weirdos. Adios. Okay, so I pulled a tarot card. Yeah. And we got the nine of cups reversed. What does that mean? It means that instead of looking outside of yourself for your happiness, you should search within. Success and happiness mean different things to different people. So instead of doing what you think will make other people happy, do what will make you happy. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. You're welcome. (laughs)